Alrighty, welcome back. Uh, hope you all enjoyed being out in the nice weather this weekend. It's a tragedy that it wasn't. It was so hot then, and it's so nice now. You're inside. Um, quizzes, okay. Uh, let's see, a little bit of administrivia to take care of. Um, I have the uh, creative project assignments. I'll uh, get to those at the uh, break. Also, I have your exam scores, uh, which, as you know, um, is my custom. I'll distribute those at the end of class. Oh, no, do I have the whole thing? Yeah, okay, there you go. on the copy there. Uh, and qu quizzes. I got all kinds of stuff to give you. And then also, uh, partway through the term, usually about halfway through, but we're a little late this time, I prepare a um, sort of like a progress report, but mostly it's uh, so that I know that I've recorded your scores correctly. So what I'll ask you to do is to go through uh, the scores I've recorded and check against your own records and scantrons and things and make sure I've got the right numbers. And it's week eight, so if uh, for whatever reason you feel like you don't want to finish the class and drop it, then uh, you'll have to do that this week or else you're SOL as it goes. Huh? Okay, so first, any questions on the reading? Um, anything in particular you want me to talk about? Okay, then uh, you'll get my standard equipment spiel today. So uh, eating disorders. Um, one of the things that uh, I want to talk about in terms of eating disorders is uh, the idea that eating disorders are a very culturally determined phenomenon. Um, it is, you know, there are some biological correlates of eating disordered behavior. Uh, however, the variations and the prevalence of eating disorders um, indicate that it's a strongly culturally influenced uh, disorder. So, uh, so for one thing, let's talk a little bit about the social pressures that come to bear on body image. Because fundamentally, eating disordered individuals uh, have a dis an extraordinary distortion of body image. They see their bodies uh, very unrealistically. It's not to the point of what we would normally call a delusion, right? In the way that, for example, body dysmorphic disorder, somebody can actually have um, delusions. But in the case of uh, eating disordered behavior, the individual uh, 
their subjective experience of their body image is very different than the objective experience that other people have around them. So it's a real, it's sort of, it's a real sense of um, disrupted cognition about body image. Um, mainly women have uh, eating disorders. They outnumber men about 10 to 1 in terms of eating disorder behavior, but that doesn't mean that men don't also have eating disorders. And so what we tend to look at in terms of social pressures are the kinds of expectations that women are placed under for uh, how their body should look, right? Or in order to be accepted, my body needs to be a certain way. Uh, but men also experience something similar to that, but again, not quite as severe. Um, frequently, um, fat and fat people is used as a, uh, as a, as a comedic device. Um, fat people are funny, right? They're jolly, right? Um, so in this way, we get communicated to us that sort of fat people aren't to be taken seriously, uh, thin people are maybe, right? Um, and so in order to meet these expectations of body image, we go through a lot of machinations. We go through a lot of b bizarre behaviors in order to try to achieve some semblance of this body image. So it's not uncommon, for example, that people will use diets. Now, first of all, diet is not a bad word. What's unhelpful is a diet that's extreme and a diet that, um, that results in uh, an extreme loss of weight that then starts to become uh, a health risk problem, right? Um, and then when we talk about in terms of social expectations and what's normal eating, then are we to consider vegetarians disordered eaters, people who have some sort of eating disorder? Um, because they're not like the rest of us, right? When we talk about abnormality, it's things that are relatively statistically rare. Vegetarians are statistically rare in this culture. And so do we want to um, create an eating disorder for them? Why? Why not? What makes vegetarian eating normal but anorexia abnormal? Yeah. Good. So go back to those, you know, those three primary characteristics. Is it dangerous? Is it disturbing or disruptive? And is it maladaptive, right? Um, so in, those, in that context, it's not dangerous for vegetarian eaters to eat, to eat just vegetables or not eat meat or even vegans, um, as long as they have access to you know, so forms of protein that allow them to have a complete protein source. Uh, and they generally aren't disturbed about their own behavior, and they're not delusional, right? And um, other people might be disturbed about their eating behavior, but that disturbance really doesn't go to the, to the level that we start talking about abnormality. Uh, and certainly, it's not necessarily maladaptive to be a vegetarian eater. Although anybody who has uh, traveled for work or traveled for business knows how difficult it is uh, to be a vegetarian in this culture. 
uh, to find vegetarian food if you're not cooking it yourself. So you might, it might be maladaptive in the sense that, you know, you can't find food to eat and you wind up, you know, nibbling at the salad bar or something. I don't know. Um, and then, uh, then the, the issue of exercise. So exercise is a good, uh, healthy behavior for people to engage in. And so when we talk about moderate exercise, that's acceptable, that's good, that's adaptive. When we talk about extreme exercise, now we start talking about maladaptivity and exercise being dangerous, right? So if you're spending two, three, four hours a day, you know, you go home from work, you don't have dinner, you go straight to the gym, you come back from the gym at 10 o'clock at night, you go to bed, that's not, that's not uh, healthy, that's dangerous and it's maladaptive because you're not going to be able to participate in social functioning that way, right? Um, so ultimately, um, we, we want to look at the degree to which eating disordered behaviors are destructive behaviors and the degree to which social pressures may drive us uh, to engage in those uh, destructive behaviors, right? Was that a sneeze? Oh, okay. Allergies? No? Okay, yeah. Um, all right. So let's take a little, let's take just a, a bit of time to look at body image and what this is all about. Well, first I'd like to show you some uh, images that I collected from the internet. Um, now, the important thing about media portrayals of uh, expectations of body image is that when you see a picture in a magazine, you're not seeing reality. Okay, let me show you how that works. So here's a couple of pictures. On the left is the picture that was actually published. On the right was the original photograph. Now, this is from uh, a guy named Glenn Farron, and his job is to do photo retouching. So his job is to take a photo of you which has imperfections, because bodies have imperfections, human beings are imperfect creatures, to take those imperfections and remove them so that when someone else looks at your picture, they think you're perfect, right? So you might notice, for example, in this upper image, uh, on the right side here, uh-oh, we got a little bulge. We can't have that. We're going to take that right out, right? So a bulge at the waistline. Uh, you'll notice a little bit of uh, discolored flesh here and maybe some wrinkles or weird skin. Oh, we're going to take care of that. Nothing under the underarm. The underarm must be completely devoid of any kind of uh, essence of your femininity or your masculinity, maybe. Um, and uh, certainly uh, stretch marks have to go on the hips. Those are going to go. So here's the, uh, here's the great image here. Beautiful. Uh, if, uh, if slightly grotesque in the proportions, but, um, and uh, the original picture. Again, the underarms, uh, the stretch marks are gone. This flabbiness is gone. What's that? So the face, there was some changes in the face, yeah. Okay. 
Now, this is a better example of that sort of facial touch-up stuff. So the, uh, the desired image, right? No imperfections, everything is just right. But the reality is of uh, an individual with some, you know, with some wrinkles and bags under her eyes. She's tired. She lives a busy life, right? This is reality. This is freckles, right? Real women don't have freckles. <laughs> this, is what, this is what the image is telling you, right? Your imperfections are unacceptable, right? In order to be admired as a celebrity, you'd better not have these imperfections, so we take them out, right? But the problem is that most people don't realize that this is where it starts, and it ends up with perfection, right? And it takes a lot of work to do that. Okay, so, uh, so that's my fun little demo of photo retouching. Um, now, uh, here's a cover from the uh, magazine Red Book. And here's the deal with this cover. Uh, I'll show you the cover as it was uh, published and then it will alternate with the image that was originally taken uh, in the studio. Faith Hill. So not only um, are some of the perfections removed, look how much they thinned out her arms, right? Her waist, right? We can't have a waist, that, that would be too, that would be too, uh, too feminine, right? We can't take the waist. So we thin out the arms. The shoulders are changed, right? There's no more hump here in the shoulder. Uh, the face is changed. It's actually even at a different angle, right? It's changed the angle slightly. Um, the color of the hair, of course, uh, is going to be different. And what else did I notice in here? Anything else you notice? What is it? Face gets thinned out. Oh yeah, sure. Right, this is all different. This cheek, this shoulder, cheek line, and uh, chin line is different. And they uh, they deepen the image of the collarbone here, as it to make it look thinner, right? So they can add little shadows as a as a trick to make you think that it's thinner than it is. So these are ways to to tell you that normal average bodies are not acceptable, right? They're not perfect enough. What's that? Her arm gets lengthened out, right? So we like those long limbs, don't we? Right? Those long, lanky limbs, except not too lanky. That would be imperfect then, right? Okay. All right, so now uh, the next little piece that I'm going to show you is a bit of a video, and it, I think it was part of a Dove uh, advertising campaign. Uh, and Dove has this thing, the campaign for beauty. And so you might see a Dove uh, soap commercial once in a while, and you'll notice that the models are not super thin, super beautiful, super perfect. They actually, you know, they have a belly, Right? They have thighs like regular, normal women do, right? Average, healthy women. 
Uh, but what's interesting is when you look at those commercials and you go, oh, wow, look, those women are overweight. No, it's because all the other commercials, they're all thin out. Remember the, uh, the deal with Britney Spears, right? On the, was it MTV Music Awards or something? And I looked at, I looked at her, I go, she looks, she's looking pretty good. And everybody's like, what's the matter with her? She's so fat. I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> looks good to me, right? So these are weird kinds of ways that we get communicated to us that, um, that we have to have bodies a certain way. So this uh, little clip of video is a demonstration of all of what we just talked about in action. Uh, they're going to uh, take a model. They're going to start out in the photo studio. They're going to take some pictures of her. And then they're going to take her images into the computer and use Photoshop to um, make her into the image that they want rather than the image of reality that, uh, that they don't want. Thanks, you can hit that light. So this is a real good example of, you know, the idea that um, what we see in the media is very different than what reality really is. And remember um, from intro psych, the idea of observational learning, right? That when we observe others engaging in a particular behavior, we learn from that and we're learning from these images all the time, right? So uh, just so that, uh, guys, we don't feel left out, um, some images uh, that I picked up today. Uh, this first one uh, is from one of your favorite uh, clothing catalogs, yes? Abercrombie and Fitch. Um, probably the worst clothing uh, catalog uh, in terms of guys who may have uh, uh, body image issues. Tri an incredible trigger for guys that have body image issues, right? This is, not, this is not a body that you just get. It doesn't just come from nowhere. This is a body that takes a lot of work to actually make it what it is, plus all the Photoshopping that's going to have to go in to actually make it look the way it does, right? And uh, so... And then there's uh, magazines devoted to uh, ostensibly men's health. Okay. So first of all, uh, the image is one of, uh, as I said, these abdominal muscles that are, you know, very ribbed, very intense. Uh, 
you know, there's not a whole lot going on in the arms here. In fact, this arm's a little uh, emaciated, but this is an eating disordered body, most likely. Um, also, notice the headlines here, scrawny to brawny, right? Nobody wants to be scrawny, they want to be brawny. Um, get killer arms, right? Gonna work on those arms, gonna work on those abs, gonna make the body perfect. Yeah, uh, Chris? Oh, how interesting. You very much so before the photo shoot, you um, engage in disordered behaviors, dangerous perhaps behaviors, in order to get the body looking as good as it can. Was that in the days before Photoshop, I suppose? Mm, no, not so much. <coughs> just to make it easier for people that were Photoshopping. Okay. Um, and uh, I liked this one too. First of all, uh, special lose your gut issue. Well, I find my gut endearing. I think it's, it's, it's a charming little gut. It's part of my natural charm. I wouldn't want to lose it. Uh, your best body ever, right? Um, flat belly foods, right? Um, Get abs like these. Uh, you know, I notice I skipped over sex with someone new every night. And of course, that itself <laughs> is disordered behavior, most likely. Um, dangerous and disturbing. Um, what's that? His belly button is way high up. Yeah, I don't know. That's bizarre, yeah. That's probably a, maybe that's a Photoshop uh, artifact. I don't know. They wanted to make him look taller, so they stretched out his belly. I don't know. So, um, so these are ways that we that we are communicated to about what uh, we should look like. Now, um, that, again, that's not to say that there aren't biological parts and psychological parts of uh, eating disorder behavior, but there is definitely a social characteristic. And uh, one of the um, indicate a social and cultural characteristic, one of the indicators of that is the notion that uh, eating disorders are primarily a, a product or, or an artifact of Western cultures. Eastern cultures tend to have less of them, and African cultures tend to have less. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. But that, because like that's how I see them. Like it's not a. I'm saying, oh, he's you know he's attractive. He's got a great body. It's more like that's immediately turned off because I think he is a homosexual. Interesting, huh? So, um, so body image and how our body looks is going to convey all kinds of things to other people too. Um, and, you know, regardless of whether they are heterosexual or homosexual, um, the, um, you know, the body image issues are going to still be the same. Um, but, yeah, this is, you know, the, the, the stereotype of gay men in, in, uh, in the United States, at least. I, don't, I assume it's the same in Europe and 
Asia, is one of uh, a, a relatively neat individual who's concerned about their appearance, right? Um, straight guys are, you know, it's like we let it all hang out, right? Not always. That's the thing, okay? You'd be surprised, actually, but yeah. Okay, so um, so what are the uh, what are the main elements of an eating disorder? As I said, um, the main issue is uh, self-evaluation. So how you feel about your body, and the fact that your body shape and weight is going to have an inordinate influence on your behavior. So your behavior. Uh, is going to be dictated partly by uh, body shape and weight. Uh, but per not necessarily the actual shape, but your perceived image of that shape, your uh, subjective image. Um, the key elements of uh, anorexia nervosa is, first of all, individuals with anorexia nervosa refuse to maintain uh, what we consider a normal uh, body weight. And there's, you know, there's actuarial charts that talk about normal uh, body weights. Um, and when we say refusal to maintain normal, this means 15% or more below normal body weight. Okay. Um, these individuals have an intense fear. And that fear is that they are either becoming or are already fat, even though uh, that when they look in, you know, when anybody else looks at them, they look emaciated, right? Uh, and in fact, it's interesting, this fear intensifies when they lose weight too. So that's another indicator that they're not um, actually seeing their body as it is but rather it's a distorted uh, image that they're maintaining. <coughs> Sexual uh, function is oftentimes disrupted in people with anorexia. So uh, with men, they'll tend to lose libido. With women, uh, they may experience amenorrhea or a cessation of the uh, uh, menstrual period, menstruation. Um, okay, so that's anorexia nervosa. Bulimia nervosa is characterized primarily by binge eating. Now, the other thing that bulimia contains, notice that there's no um, normal weight consideration with bulimia. Uh, what we will generally tend to see is individuals with bulimia will maintain a relatively normal weight, but they do that it, despite their binge eating by engaging in, in what's termed inappropriate compensatory behaviors. Uh, so a compensatory behavior for binge eating, one compensatory behavior uh, might be purging, that is throwing up the food that you've eaten so that you, your body doesn't have a chance to digest it and then uh, use the uh, constituent products of the food. Uh, another inappropriate compensatory behavior, particularly in men, um, is exercise. Men are typically less likely to do uh, purging, much more likely to engage in uh, extreme exercise. And for men, most of the men who, uh, who will uh, be diagnosed with eating disorders, um, there's a high association with uh, athletics. So 
Uh, it's a big problem, for example, on a lot of athletic teams uh, in college and high school. Uh, questions on this? Hurry. Scribble. Don't write carefully. You can always rewrite your notes. Um, Okay, we'll talk a little bit about um, how we classify uh, eating disorders and also a little bit about the history of how uh, we've come by understanding them. So first of all, uh, anorexia nervosa, um, one of the prime considerations is loss of appetite. But not only loss of appetite, but actually an inability to eat. When people do eat, they may even feel nauseous after a few bites, okay? So these are individuals who are actually going to starve themselves to death eventually uh, if the disorder goes long enough. Um, with bulimia, as I said, we generally have this um, binge eating behavior. So uh, someone might eat, um, you know, a normal diet is maybe 1,800, 2,000 calories a day. Someone uh, who's binge eating might be eating 4,000 to 6,000 calories a day. Uh, but they don't gain weight as a product of these compensatory behaviors. There are two more uh, possible eating disorders that are, that are currently not in the DSM. One is uh, the binge eating disorder, and the other is a purge eating disorder. And the differences are that the binge eating disorder um, doesn't have the compensatory behaviors that bulimia does, and the purge eating disorder uh, doesn't have the um, doesn't necessarily have the binge eating part of it, but does have the purging compensatory behavior. So, um, but those are again uh, not officially recognized. Um, First description of anorexia in the late 1800s, uh, William Gull. And then we see kind of a uh, gap. And really nothing gets said about eating disorders until about the 1960s. And we start seeing case studies of eating disorders. And the first reference in the DSM won't come until the DSM-3 in the 1980s. Now, that doesn't mean that the disorders didn't exist, um, but rather uh, they may have been attributed to some other behavior. Remember, here's the deal. Uh, before 1960, we're heavily influenced by the psychodynamic approach, and um, they may have been considered uh, perhaps a defense mechanism, for example, and dealing with sexual conflicts, things like that. And originally, uh, when that came out in the DSM-3, eating disorders didn't have their own classification in the DSM. They were actually classified as uh, uh, disorders usually diagnosed in infancy, childhood, and adolescence. And they subsequently were moved to their own separate category. And I think that that represents a recognition of the prevalence of the disorders. Um, they do often emerge during adolescence. 
Uh, but they do deserve their own uh, classification. Questions on this? Let's talk about each of the uh, disorders separately, uh, anorexia and then uh, bulimia. So anorexia uh, comes in a couple of different uh, subtypes. Um, there's uh, one called the restricting type. And the restricting type revolves around basically starving, um, reducing your caloric intake to a level that doesn't sustain your basic metabolic functions. Uh, so an individual with uh, the restricting type might, for example, instead of eating 2,000 calories a day, might uh, try to find a diet that's maybe 300 to 400 calories a day and maintain that rigorously for weeks on end. And that results in uh, huge disruptions in your body's uh, function. Uh, then there's uh, something called the binge purge type of anorexia which has to do with uh, binge eating and then, the f and then the purging, the forced removal. Now, don't confuse this with bulimia, okay? The difference is that with anorexia, um, uh, you're going to have less than 85% of your normal weight, right? So that's the, that's the primary difference. People with anorexia are underweight. People with bulimia are typically normal weight. Uh, and also, um, you will see uh, amenorrhea. Uh, in uh, anorexia. Partly because of the weight, uh, the, the, uh, the reduced weight. Um, somewhat less than about 1% of the general population will be diagnosed with anorexia. And about 10 to 1, as I said, of those uh, will be women rather than men. And the main concern for practitioners and physicians is that uh, when you're on this, when you're, when you're engaging in this disordered eating, you're going to be causing serious uh, physical damage to your body. Um, and it is not uncommonly a fatal disorder. Um, well, I guess it's not that common. Uh, you know, one out of 20, one out of 18 to one out of 20 uh, individuals with anorexia will die from it. So it is a uh, serious, serious disorder. And typically what they'll die from are um, real systemic kinds of uh, problems where body systems just shut down. So heart uh, problems are not uncommon kidney problems, and then, of course, immune dysfunction. If your immune system, if your body's stressed out by not getting enough food, um, your immune system is going to suffer. And as I said, uh, William Gull um, first described these cases in the late 1800s. And uh, what he was interested in was the idea that um, when parents or family members of individuals with anorexia tried to get them to eat, the people with anorexia actually 
had less appetite. So the more pressure they have to eat and to gain weight, that activates their disturbed body image and their appetite actually gets reduced. So it's, it's a real nasty kind of disorder that's um, really difficult to treat. And it's hard for families, as you can imagine. You know, you want this person to eat, you tell them to eat, and they eat less when you tell them to eat. And so that's going to be a real disturbing experience for family members. Any questions on anorexia? Okay. Um, Let's talk about bulimia. Um, what is binge eating? When we talk about binge eating, the main definition is that you eat more than normal, more than what is normal or average, uh, within a particular discrete time period. So for example, if I give you um, an hour for dinner, how much does the normal person eat in an hour? Or let's say half an hour. How much does the normal person eat in half an hour? And how much uh, do you eat in half an hour? And if you're eating uh, much more than normal in that half hour period, then we're going to start talking about it as being abnormal eating. And then the other key feature of binge eating is a sense of loss of control. And almost like a dissociation. Like you become almost dissociated from your body and the hand is going to the mouth all by itself. It's you're all, you're, you aren't, you aren't in control of your body. Your body is dictating your behavior, right? And that, as you can imagine, is going to be very disturbing if someone realizes that they're in the middle of that behavior. Now, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, if I go home tonight, after working all day and I sit down with a half gallon of uh, uh, umpqua chocolate chip ice cream dough, cookie dough ice cream, and I mindlessly consume half of it, that is considered binge eating. But at what point does it become dangerous or abnormal? And what we're going to see is, again, frequency, intensity, duration. Okay. So binging once in a while, no problem. Binging every day, that's a problem. Okay. Um, and then the other part of bulimia are these inappropriate compensatory behaviors. And again, uh, as with anorexia, there's a purging type of uh, bulimia, which involves people uh, throwing up to get rid of the food in their system before they digest it. And then the non-purging type. And the non-purging type typically involves exercise in order to burn the calories. Um, so this is a way to, per, to, to uh, binge and to be able to have access to the food and to engage in the behavior, but try to avoid the consequences of weight gain. The problem is that these compensatory behaviors are damaging too. For example, with purging, that's going to cause problems with uh, dental uh, with, with your teeth uh, and your esophagus. Esophageal cancer is a huge problem. 
And then with the non-purging, the exercise can become a huge problem. When, uh, when you're engaging in exercise A, you may, uh, you, know, you may miss work because you exercised and worked out all night long and you couldn't get enough sleep. You may have uh, disruptions in social patterns or family uh, patterns. So there's all kinds of problems that can arise from these compensatory behaviors. The prevalence is higher in bulimia than it is in anorexia. Um, with men, it's about the same as anorexia, about uh, somewhat less than 1% of men will have bulimia. Somewhere between 1 and 3% of women will, uh, will be diagnosed with bulimia at some point in their lives. And uh, again, one of the main problems with bulimia is the issue of physical damage. And usually what's going to happen with bulimia is um, problems with electrolyte balance. So um, the, uh, whoops, sorry. Problems with electrolyte balance. This is that weird uh, delay it's doing. And then, as I said, problems with the esophagus and teeth. And then we also will tend to see, start to see hormonal imbalances occurring. Because your body is used to having a certain amount of nutrition available. Uh, and when it doesn't have that, things start to get all out of whack. Okay, That's a technical term, out of whack. Yeah. Just kidding. Really? Questions on uh, either one of those? I've got a uh, video clip, bless you, of um, a woman with uh, bulimia. But uh, I'll tell you what, we'll run that uh, after we take a break. It's about uh, five of you. Want to come back about 10 minutes? That should give us enough time. So uh, let's take a look at um, a short uh, video clip. This is uh, a woman with uh, bulimia, and she works in a uh, restaurant, of all places. And so she'll tell you a little bit about her experience with uh, with bulimia. Can you hit that light back there again? Thanks. During the last 20 years, there has been a dramatic increase in the number of cases of bulimia nervosa. Bulimia nervosa is characterized by a pattern of binge eating in which individuals feel a loss of control over their eating and consume inordinate amounts of food. In some cases, individuals can consume 15 to 20,000 calories in a single meal. Bulimia nervosa also includes extreme efforts to avoid weight gain by means of vomiting, taking laxatives, or by exercising in excessive amounts. In 
Interestingly, fully 90% of the severe cases of bulimia are found among young Caucasian females in upper socioeconomic classes. In the following interview, Nancy, a 34-year-old waitress, describes her battle with bulimia nervosa. Nancy explains that she developed concerns about her body image early in life and describes her first experiments with binging and purging. I learned at an early age that my, that being overweight was not a good thing. You know, it just, you life was not good for overweight people. And then when I was about 18, I had lost quite a bit of weight. I had my wisdom teeth taken out and I had lost weight and I felt really good and I liked that feeling a lot. I, first time I was thin. And gained the weight back, and I thought, you know, gosh, I like being thin, you know, I want to get back to that point, and I just couldn't do it, I couldn't do it, and I was over at my grandmother's house, opened up the newspaper, and at Ann Lander's article, there was an article about a girl who was wrote in the Ann Lander's and talked about how she lost weight through putting her hand down her throat and vomiting. And I thought, wow, that kind of sounds like a good idea. So <laughs> I, go, had, I go over to my grandmother's house and make cookies. And I remember, I thought, well, I'm going to try it. So I ate a whole bunch of cookie dough and went to her bathroom, threw it up. And I thought, this is great. I went over to my girlfriend's house, told her about it, told her to try it. You know, I mean, I was like thinking I had something going on here, you know? And my girlfriend was like, this is so disgusting, and she couldn't do it, but I kept doing it. When I wake up, the, my, in, my immediate thought is food. How am I going to get through my day either not eating or, you know, depending on the day, how can, how can I go until like 3 o'clock without eating? So, you know, a lot of my mind, my mind energy is consumed on, you know, what can I do you know, how can I keep myself busy to get through this until three o'clock when I allow myself to eat? And, and then if I'm practicing my binging and purging, especially at work, since I work at a restaurant and I have all of this opportunity for food, once I start on the food, it's like I don't have time for customers. I'm so engrossed in the food that all I want to do is hurry up and get, you know, my shift over with so I can, you know, finish my food, get home, and purge. Nancy has suffered from bulimia nervosa for 17 years, and during that time, she has binged and purged almost daily. In the following interview, she describes a typical binge and purge episode. Nancy explains how she is plagued by obsessive thoughts of food and eating, and describes how purging provides her with a sense of relief. The food, I want it so bad. But once I have it, I, I have no control over it. It's like the food has total control over me. And the, it's just coming at me. And I really feel that I cannot stop it. And so I, then I've lost control. Control to me is is not binging, that's control. And I've lost control once I start that binge. Okay, this was a binge uh, last Friday. 
And it consisted of a loaf of bread and butter. It has to be real butter. Um, a big plate, big dinner plate of scrap. Now this is food from work. So this is, I, I'm describing the food that was available to me at that time. Um, a big plate of scrambled eggs and hash browns. I, I mean a big plate. Um, and a loaf of bread and butter. A pound of butter, not, not, you know, a couple dabs. I like a lot of butter on my bread, a ton of butter on my bread. In fact, people at work, they don't know I have an eating disorder, but if I'm in that mode and they see me, they'll go, oh my gosh, how can you eat that much butter on a teeny piece of bread? So, I mean, it's an, an unusual amount that people take notice of it. About eight pieces of French toast, about four muffins, about five danishes, and then by that time I'm kind of feeling a little bit sick, but at the end of a binge I like to end it with chocolate or sweets. After I purge, I feel, well I feel like, oh, thank God I could get this all out. That, I mean that's a big concern for me that I can't get all of my food out. And then I start thinking, well, I know some of the food has stayed in me, and so I try and figure out how much has stayed in me. So then I can kind of figure out how much I can eat the rest of the day. In this final sequence, Nancy describes the physical and psychological consequences of her purging behavior. Although she's tried a variety of therapeutic techniques, Nancy has been unable to overcome her problem. She remains hopeful, however, of someday reaching her goal of breaking the cycle of binging and purging that has dominated her life. A lot of women I have talked to, they either it becomes easier to purge or it becomes harder. And for me, it's harder. Every time I do it, it gets harder the next time. So I can't, right now, I can't anymore just stick my hand down my throat. I have to take plastic bags and insert them. I like hold on to them and pray to God that they don't go down, stick plastic bags in my throat and make myself gag that way. I've tried the, um, the antidepressants. I've tried acupuncture. Uh, therapy was probably the best thing for me. That really, really helped me out a lot. Um, I've done OA, I've gone to OA meetings, um, I've done support groups. My sister brought me this, um, I can't remember the name of it, it's a, a magazine about natural medicines and there was an article about eating disorders. I went to the store, I bought all of the pills, I did these pills for a while. I think I have tried every article that that gives you a suggestion. I have tried it. I, you know, I've journaled. I've taken walks in the beautiful forest to get my mind off of these <laughs> things. I've tried it. I think I've tried everything that I can come up with. And I would say the thing that has worked for me is 
therapy and really just doing some real inner work on myself. My personal goal is to never vomit again. Um, the, the side effects that have come out of this are that my teeth are basically rotted. Um, and, I, and I feel extremely ashamed of myself for that. Um, I have bad problems like uh, like burning sensations because of the vomit. You know, it's it's uh, like taken some of this. I don't know the inner of my esophagus. I know there's something going on there. I haven't had it checked out, but I know there's something going on there. Um, just not, and it's ta and it and it took obviously my self-esteem. I had none. But every time I do it, it, you know, it like puts me down again, you know, and I feel really bad about myself. And I've gotten to a point where I try not to get on myself about that because I went for a really long stretch and I was really, really proud of myself. And then some things happened and I got back into it. And so now, you know, it's like you just keep, you know, you get what is it, you fall off your horse and you jump right back on it. And that's my, my, uh, my attitude about it. But the eventual goal is no, I don't want to purge anymore. To struggle every single day. Not one day can I honestly say that I have had just a carefree, easy-go-lucky kind of thing going on. But that is my eventual goal, and I will get there. <laughs> You can hit that light back there again. So, uh, any comments on that? Yeah, it really is um, amazing that her stomach could hold that much food, yeah. Did you notice anything in general about her demeanor? Good, good. She seen her uh, emotion was relatively flat, relatively flat affect, yeah. Um, she's obviously not delusional, right? Um, she doesn't like doing this stuff, and uh, but it's not something that she actually feels like she can control. But notice control is a real big issue here, isn't it? You know? Um, her, you know, her goal is to control this, you know, uncontrollable behavior. And it's almost like the more she tries to control it, the more uncontrollable it winds up becoming. So it's a very difficult, uh, a very difficult disorder. It sounds similar to addiction. Yeah, right. Right, so the um, some of the uh, like the twelve-step recovery models for addictive behaviors uh, are very much like that, where um, you know uh, people will become convinced that 
they can control this addictive behavior, but then when they actually try, it doesn't work. And um, ironically, there's something about um, relinquishing that, that notion that you can control it that actually gives you power to overcome it. But yeah, yeah, that's an interesting observation. You know, it has a lot of similarities with compulsions, right? Um, and obsessions. She says she wakes up and it's on her mind, right? It's this very obsessive kind of thinking, very compulsive kind of behavior, yeah. Yeah. And once she starts the eating, then everything else is gone. You know, Good. Starts the binging, and it's like the customers don't matter anymore, and she can't, you know, get over her shift quick enough to just focus on what she needs to do. So it's very dissociative. Takes her out of her body, out of her, out of her present existence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about some of the theories of. Uh, why eating disorders uh, exist. Um, first of all, uh, culture has an effect, particularly um, specific cultures. Certain cultures uh, place more emphasis on thinness in body and thickness in body. Um, and uh, so, you know, in some cultures, the ideal is for women is to be very thin. In other cultures, the ideal is to be relatively voluptuous, relatively Rubenesque. Um, also, these things change over time. Cultural expectations change uh, dramatically over time. So when you look at um, uh, you know, depictions of beauty uh, in art from the uh, 18th, 19th century, these were not particularly thin women, and especially in relationship to, to our contemporary conceptions of thinness. Uh, there's a, an idea that uh, there's a particular family style that may contribute to eating disordered behavior, and it's called an enmeshed family style. And um, the idea behind the enmeshed family style is that the family exerts a great deal of pressure um, on the individual for thinness. and. Uh, so this is uh, one of the ideas about what, what we, where we generally tend to see eating disorders in American culture is in relatively affluent Caucasian, uh, typically women. Now this is really uh, antithetical or um, um, it contrasts starkly with most other disorders where we see higher prevalence in lower socioeconomic status groups, and typically often higher prevalence in uh, minorities. So it's a very unusual disorder in that way. Um, I talked about socioeconomic differences. Um, and in these higher socioeconomic status families, um, there tends to be more pressure to be perfect or to look, you know, look right. You know, you have to look good to the outside community. Yeah, so there's a there's an association with perhaps with uh, weight and um, like laziness. Um, in addition, uh, people in higher socioeconomic status groups tend to have uh, more leisure time, 
And so, uh, so that leisure time may give them more of an opportunity to kind of focus on this distorted body image. Lower socioeconomic status groups tend to um, uh, either not share the same kinds of ideals that higher socioeconomic status groups, or they may even actively reject them. So that may be one reason why we don't see as high of a prevalence of uh, eating disorders in lower socioeconomic status, uh, lower socioeconomic status groups. Um, so those are kind of the, you know, the issues around soci uh, social and cultural uh, influences on uh, eating disorders. Let's look at some of the psychological theories out there about why these disorders emerge, why they perpetuate. Um, one of the ideas is that uh, people with eating disorders have a higher uh, tendency to be concerned with the appraisal of other people. Now again, when you're raised, for example, in higher socioeconomic status groups, oftentimes you're, uh, these families tend to uh, raise their children with a, with a lot of uh, emphasis on the idea that other people are watching or you have to look good to, to other people. That's part of success, is looking good. And so, um, so they may have, uh, partly as a product of that, have this higher uh, sense of other appraisal um, being judged. Uh, also, one of the things that we tend to see in eating disordered individuals is relatively rigid and dichotomous thinking. Dichotomous means like bipolar. You know, it means not like bipolar disorder, but it means um, you're either wonderful or you're trash, one or the other. And there's no uh, ground in the middle. And this is also sometimes characteristic of uh, mood disorders and depression. Um, a third approach to this is um, a model developed by uh, Heatherton and Baumeister. And this revolves around the idea that um, binging and eating disorder behavior is a way to escape from your negative self-awareness. And here's how this model works. Um, we um, become aware of the high standards that other people have for us, that our society has, or that our socioeconomic status group has, or our family has. We have difficulty meeting those high standards, which means we're gonna fail, and failure um, makes us aware that we are inadequate that there's something wrong with us. And that inadequacy then um, generates negative affect, so we feel bad, you know, we're aware that we're not adequate, now we start to feel bad. And that um, negative affect leads to what we call cognitive narrowing. So um, you start seeing things very narrowly, you don't see all the perspectives, you don't see all the possibilities, you just see that one little perspective that you have. Right, and that's um, part of that uh, dichotomous thinking, and that uh, gives way to it, it. It it sets up the condition for disinhibition, right? And so, when you become disinhibited, your behavior becomes disinhibited. Um, that leads to binging. 
Um, and this model, you know, it doesn't, it's relatively new. It doesn't have, um, it has some empirical support, but, uh, but it's really an explanatory model that's still being explored at this point. In terms of biology, um, the genetic evidence is relatively inconsistent. I'm sorry, did I uh, skip over that? Okay, no. Um, and uh, when we talk about biology, um, we, we get inconsistent results when we look for genetic markers for eating disorder behavior. But again, it does travel in families. So, um, so there may be some genetic component, but what we think right now, it's the dynamics of the family that have more of an influence. Um, about three quarters of uh, people with eating disorders will also qualify for a mood disorder. Um, so there seems to be some kind of a link perhaps with the neurotransmitters that are associated with uh, mood disorders. Um, there is an idea that um, it may be product, partly a product of the hypothalamus, and if the hypothalamus is dysfunctional, that's going to throw off your, uh, your normal bodily regulation uh, systems. And some pretty good evidence for the idea that hypothalamus function is disrupted is the idea that we oftentimes, in people with eating disorders, will see um, imbalances or um, abnormal levels of neurotransmitters and hormones. Um, but the question is, is this, is this regulation problem a cause of the eating disorder or perhaps a consequence of the eating disorder? Because remember, the eating disorder behaviors are going to throw your body into uh, chaos in terms of regulation. Um, now, we talked about this idea of uh, mood disorders. And very often, what people with eating disorders will experience is cravings, oftentimes for carbohydrates. Notice how much of what she ate was carbohydrates, the potatoes, the muffins, the um, pastries, uh, the, yeah, what's that? Yeah, the French toast. These are all high carbohydrate foods. And one of the products of carbohydrates uh, is uh, that it that they provide the precursor chemicals that are used to manufacture serotonin. And so that craving may be a function of low serotonin levels, which again are going to be related to um, mood disorders, particularly depression. Um, now, um, what was I, I think that's all I was going to tell you about that. Questions on this? Biological stuff. Um, there are a couple of um, biochemical uh, what are called neuropeptides. These are like neurotransmitters and uh, hormones. Um, neuropeptide uh, Y and polypeptide. Double Y. And these are two um, 
uh, neurological chemicals that are beginning to get a lot of attention in terms of their association with eating disorder behavior. We see abnormal levels of both of these in people with eating disorders. So this is another good indication that there may be a, some biological underpinnings for the disorder. But again, it's tough to know if it's cause or uh, consequence. So. Say again. That, oh, so it's just correlated, yeah, yeah. Um, when you uh, think about treatment options for people with eating disorders, they have to consider both the cultural context, but most importantly, the family context that people are coming from. Um, so when we think about culture, in Western culture, our whole thing now is about being thin. Um, and as I said, it hasn't always been that way, but some, uh, non-Western cultures tend to have a very different conception of what um, attractive bodies are and they tend not to consider uh, thin bodies to be particularly attractive. So uh, bodies with some fat on them are associated with higher rates of fertility for example uh, as opposed to in, in Western culture where we have the opposite conception. And uh, for men, um, fat is associated with resource availability, which may be um, an indicator of their ability to, for example, provide for family. And, um, uh, um, and what's interesting is um, these non-Western cultures are beginning to see high, you know, rates of eating disorders that are going up. And so the more that um, the, the, the Western cultural ideals are brought into these cultures and the more that they admire those ideals, the more likely that those uh, eating disorders will go up. So a classic example is Japan. Japan's seen uh, a big increase in the rates of eating disorders um, as Westernization has occurred there. Um, West Japanese culture, typically people in Japan admire Western culture greatly and they look up to uh, people in the United States as models. Uh, say again? Okay. Uh, so uh, then, as I said, the other thing you have to think about when you're going to go about treatment is, you know, you have to fight off this cultural stuff, but you also have to fight off issues in the family. Um, particularly having to do with how they cope with negative emotions. Um, and what we oftentimes see in these families with eating disorders present is, uh, as you saw with, um, I forgot what her name was in the video clip, uh, she had that very flat affect. And that's not uncommon for families in eating disorders. They like try to keep a lid on any kind of extreme expression of emotion. Um, so uh, one of the ways, uh, one of the other things that families uh, with eating disorders tend in them tend to um, teach is this um, rigid and dichotomous thinking style too. Um, they tend to be very um, somewhat um, uh, fundamentalist, for example, if they're religious. Um, and there's a correlation with this, what we'll call a controlling family style. 
again, that control of emotion, that control of thinking, things don't get too out of hand. Things are always, you know, right in the middle. Things are always looking good, and um, you got to keep looking good for the outside. And controlling emotions, right? So control, 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 and that's reflected a lot in what we see in people with eating disorders, that um, uh, high level of need of control. Sexual abuse um, is a risk factor for eating disorders. So uh, someone who's sexually abused, for example, as a child is at a higher risk for developing eating disorders later in life. But the problem with this is that it's not unique to eating disorders because um, a variety of other uh, psychological disorders will exhibit um, higher rates of uh, uh, people that have been sexually abused. So it's not probably a cause, maybe an exacerbating condition. Okay. Now, uh, beyond the uh, considerations of culture and family, we do have some pretty good treatments for uh, both anorexia and bulimia, probably um, anorexia a little bit better. And so let's look at a few of those. Uh, for one thing, um, one of the forms of treatment is going to rely on drug treatments, but then there's also uh, psychotherapy that's going to be important here. Um, Tricyclics and MAOIs, nothing. Don't bother. Uh, SSRIs do show some effectiveness, but they don't tend to work well when people are significantly underweight. So they're going to have to restore normal weight before the um, SSRIs are going to be useful. Um, anorexia tends to be resistant to psychotherapy. And part of that is thought to be this idea of control, that people are so focused on trying to maintain control that they have a hard time giving in to the psychotherapeutic process, which oftentimes requires um, giving up control or loss of control and participating in the, in the process. Um, people with anorexia also are uh, resistant to seeking treatment. They think they're normal and they think they're living the only way that they possibly can. Um, and it's usually not until they wind up in some sort of medical crisis, okay? So their um, electrolyte levels get so imbalanced, their hormones get so imbalanced that they uh, actually suffer a breakdown, a physical breakdown. And so then they wind up in the hospital. And then here's the problem. Now they're forced in the hospital to eat. Okay, they may be intravenously fed and that exacerbates their control issues even further. Okay, just like with the family that urges them to eat and that exacerbates the, uh, the uh, disorder. There's also um, an idea for people with anorexia that they tend to distrust or just deny um, the feelings that they have, the emotions that they have. And so um, if they're going to deny their feelings of hunger, if they're going to deny their emotional feelings, um, that's going to be a problem. Behavioral therapy does show some usefulness, but only when it's used 
with um, traditional psychotherapy, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy. So um, you need to approach uh, both dealing with the uh, with the history problems, the psych, the psychological history, and also the behavioral aspects of the um, of the eating disordered behavior. Family therapy is important. Uh, typically, tends to work better with younger patients rather than older ones. Once they're older, um, the family system is so entrenched that. Um, and, and they become, and then they start to become distant from the family, so there's not as much uh, that can be done with the family system that's going to help them. But younger patients, they're so tied into their family that it can be very useful for them um, to have the family system change that'll uh, maybe change their um, disordered behavior. Bulimia now, uh, in terms of, hold on, give me a few more minutes here. I know we're going to run over a few minutes. Bulimia, in terms of treatment, um, does show uh, usefulness for the tricyclic uh, antidepressants. And what it'll tend to do is people will stop binging as much. Uh, and they'll uh, stop purging as much. And they'll feel more like they have control. Okay, And giving them that sense of feeling of control is useful because then they can be more comfortable engaging in psychotherapy. Uh, SSRIs uh, do reduce binging behavior. Um, purging, not so much. Um, but it can allow them to begin to um, establish normal weight if they are somewhat underweight. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, best, best possible treatment, as you heard in that videotape. You know, her reflection was that the therapy was helping the most. It's probably CBT. And that's a good long-term treatment. And it's also more effective than what's called interpersonal therapy, IPT. And one of the things that CBT tends to focus on is that oftentimes people with uh, bulimia will have like forbidden foods or um, particular foods that they're afraid of. Um, behavioral therapy is useful. Uh, usually, again, once there's some control over the binge uh, eating, once there's some control over the uh, 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 inappropriate compensatory behaviors, and then um, it's really useful for starting to reinforce people for eating foods that they are, they've developed a fear of, some sort of a conditioned fear. Um, so it's really a combination therapy that's going to work best, both for uh, anorexia and for bulimia. Um, bulimia probably has a better prognosis. Anorexia probably has a worse prognosis. Questions on treatments? Typically, because of the uh, excessive weight loss, yeah. Yep. Um, as long as you maintain normal body weight, your body can function pretty well. Um, but bulimia is going to cause huge problems in terms of um, uh, in terms of functioning and, and uh, maladaptivity. Yeah. 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 Oh, I've got your exams for you too. Hold on. So um, we'll stop there. <laughs>